This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 20 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined here today by another awesome guest. He is a software writer at Nosby, a podcaster, and the creator of many great Swift open source frameworks like Swifty User Defaults. It's Radek Pietruszewski. Welcome to the show, Radek. Shema. <laughs> Shema. <laughs> that probably took you some time to prepare for uh, this last name of mine. I've been up all night trying to pronounce your last name. <laughs> That's great. I've had some practice, so it's uh, it's good. All right, so before we uh, got on air, we had a little bit of a discussion around like what I should refer to you as. And you were you were kind of particular about that you wanted to be referred to as a software writer. And, you know, I try to accommodate my guests as much as possible and be nice. Uh, but I think it's actually pretty interesting because... There are so many ways we can refer to our profession. You know, some people call us, you know, programmers or engineers or developers, but you like to call yourself a software writer. Yeah, uh, that's an inspiration I got from uh, David Heinemar Hansen. Uh, he's the guy who made uh, Ruby on Rails framework, and he's a very opinionated person about programming. And and that's what he did on uh, he he talked about on one of his uh, keynotes on RailsConf or uh, RubyConf I'm sorry I I forgot right because most of us are not really software engineers are not our, our work is not like that of most other engineers we don't calculate things using physics our work does not have as stringent of formal requirements. And software developer is fine, uh, but what what I I got from DHH is that uh, when I write code, I'm trying to be really uh, clear mm -hmm. in in that code. Um, uh, what's really important to me is expressing my intention as a programmer uh, very clearly, as you would do when writing prose, when writing a good blog post, because I believe that it's super important when working with a team, when working on something for a long time, because if a code is not clearly written, it's going to be misunderstood and then you make bugs. So it's, it's not just an aesthetic uh, consideration, but a really practical one. And so if you treat uh, at least some of your job as as if you're writing good quality prose, then you're writing, you're, you're really writing software. And so you're a software writer. Well, yeah, that's a great way of phrasing it, I guess. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting that you have this like elaborate reason behind <laughs> it. And it's, uh, it's really interesting. And I totally agree with you. It's like, I feel like that's a very big focus on, especially when it comes to like writing code in a team or, you know, writing maintainable software. It's not only about the architecture or about, you know, what APIs you use, but it's a lot about like how the code is structured and the readability of it. Mm-hmm. Totally. So uh, besides being a software writer, <laughs> you also do a bunch of other things. You you have your own podcast, which you uh, have called, uh, you have a very interesting name for this podcast. It's <laughs> The Podcast. It's not any podcast, it's The Podcast. Uh, it's probably the most terrible name you could uh, <laughs> give to your podcast. It's completely unsearchable. Well, it, it's better now because it's it's been out for two and a half years and has some listeners, but at the beginning it was a disaster. Uh, the real reason why it's called the podcast is because I happened through a very long and complicated story 
had already for like two years owned the domain the podcast.fm ah. and so when michael pitched to me the idea of doing a podcast about well, all sorts of things not just like programming or business but you know anything that that's interesting to us and that's often like books uh you know engineering technology business marketing productivity really all sorts of stuff it's not just one topic and i happen to have a domain the podcast.fm then let's just call it a podcast <laughs> yeah yeah that makes total sense uh, i like what you guys are doing with the show it's uh i like how casual it is and it feels more like kind of you know just joining you two on a conversation you're having about things that you like mm-hmm. yeah yeah th- th- that's uh, that's what we're going for and because because it doesn't have a a, a narrow uh topic not all episodes are for everyone, but we're trying to structure it so, such that we have just like one topic for the episode and we have a page on the website where it's um, the episodes are listed by the area, the, the broad topic. And so it's a sort of podcast you can subscribe to and like ignore half of the episodes and pick those that seem like could be interesting to you. Yeah, that's a very interesting concept. And you do this together with uh, with Michael or Michal, uh, as the Polish name is, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you both work at Nosby, which is a to-do app, I guess is the best way of describing it, or productivity app, I guess. Yeah, it's it's a tool. Uh, you can use it as a simple to-do app just for yourself, or you can use it with a team. And we think that this is where it shines the most to organize your work and not just, you know, uh, organize everything by shouting over a uh, an office or um you know uh you know destroying someone's productivity all the time by writing uh to them on slack but you know organize the work communicate asynchronously you know make projects make tasks and sort of uh, manage them this way yeah that's really cool and i guess this is also something that is quite important to you as well and for me because uh, i work you know all of my work i do is remotely i go sometimes to work you know, at my client's office, but they're in Norway and I'm in Poland. So most of the time, like 99% of the time, it's uh, remote work. And then this, these kind of tools become really important. Yeah. And for you, you have also started uh, living in more like a digital nomad kind of lifestyle. That would be an exaggeration. Right. I, I don't go as far as, as some people. And I the, the phrase digital nomad... Uh, many people don't like it and and just scuff at it. Uh, it's a I bit would, of a bu- buzzword, I guess. Yeah, I would say semi-nomadic lifestyle. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a that's a good like middle ground. <laughs> yeah, because to to really be a nomad, you you have to not have a home, right? And just right. live wherever you are. For me, I do have a home, a center of my universe, but I I I you know last few months I've been spending 30 to 50 percent of of my time of all of my days just traveling across Poland mostly Mm -hmm. and because all of my work is remote and all of Nosby works remotely or spread across Poland and Europe and rest of the world um, no one really cares where I am as long as the job is done and so if I can you know pack really efficiently and I can figure out how to be productive wherever I am no one cares. And for me, that's great. I can explore more places. I can do other things, change my environment. It's fun. Yeah, it's really cool. What was it that kind of led you to start doing this kind of thing? Like, 
was it just the 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 sheer opportunity that you were actually able to do it with your work or was it like something you've always been thinking about doing like traveling more and and working this kind of way actually not at all uh that's that's something that would be unthinkable to me just a couple of years ago because the 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 way my brain is wired i'm uh, i'm really prone to feeling really overwhelmed like i i i like things to be simple and my way and sort of have control of my environment so traveling used to be really overwhelming for me uh, but i guess over time i wanted to be on conferences or i wanted to really visit someone and i would do it more and more often just because i i could and it was important to me that i got over the fact that it's a bit overwhelming and it's going to be stressful and i'll be really tired af after it but i want to do you know do this beyond this conference and since i can work remotely i could I could say yes to such opportunities more often than most people. And over time, it just became simpler and simpler. And then I figured out how to sort of optimize my system. And uh, I actually talked about it on the last episode of the podcast, so I can uh, send you the link. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to that episode. Yeah, and, and then with time, it just became you know, simple enough that I'm like, why not? It it no longer became it became no longer overwhelming. So if I have the opportunity, let's let's take it. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. It's kind of similar to why I moved to Poland in the first place. It was kind of like you know I'm able to. I'm at a point in my life where uh, you know I had already decided to kind of leave Spotify and instead of just kind of hanging around in Sweden. I was like, well, let me try living in another country for a while and see how that is. And let's try working remotely. And so far, so good. So another thing that people might know you for is your open source work. You've created a lot of really useful tools and frameworks. And I guess the most popular one or the one you've been working the most with is Swifty user defaults. Uh, yeah, um, I would say that's an exaggeration. A lot of really useful uh, libraries, but there's a few. Uh, fairly useful ones that uh, seems that some people like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard a lot of people who really like Swifty user defaults. And for me, it's like it's one of these uh, tools that came around pretty early in Swift's lifecycle, where Swift, you know, when it came out, it was, of course, had a big, big focus on like strong typing, safety and these kind of things. And then we had these like, older APIs like user defaults, or like working with JSON or dictionaries. And you know, playing well with those APIs wasn't very easy. And this is something I try to solve with Unbox, for example, where I tried to make, you know, a really nice, easy to use, strongly typed API on top of JSON. And that's kind of also the same you did with Swift user defaults, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, actually, the, um, the story behind it uh, goes almost to the beginning of, of Swift, uh, all the way back in 2014, around the time where Swift was sort of officially launched in, in September. Uh, I wrote this blog post called Swifty Methods where I argued for um, for clarity in, in code, which is what I described to you uh, talking about, uh, you know, software writer. And yeah. I, I tried to convey some of my, uh, my thoughts on clarity, on how uh, the way you, um, you structure APIs, the way you name things uh, makes a difference in terms of clarity. And I wanted to convey that because I felt that in Objective-C community, there are some common misconceptions uh, about clarity and on what a clear name is. I, I disagreed with uh, a lot of Objective-C conventions. And I thought that Swift is 
a, a clean break and it's so worth talking about it. And then after I, I did that and it, uh, the blog post you know, had a lot of reads and, and many retweets, I thought I would make a proof of concept and, and make a simple example on, on a you know on a really simple API like like user defaults and you know it wouldn't be a big deal it would just be a, a an example of how you can apply those principles to making a better swiftier API and that's how swiftier user defaults came to be yeah that's really cool uh, would you say that the kind of recent or in in the Swift three era where there was this big push on changing kind of the API conventions, establishing these API naming guidelines, would you say that that is more in line with the way you were thinking early on? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's really awesome that the the whole convention that was established in Swift 3 was, uh, the, the process of getting to that was all out in the open. It was all on the mailing lists and a lot of people from the community community could participate and I participated as well and you know uh, so when there were like a few first drafts of how the objective C APIs would be automatically translated to Swift I saw some examples that I would object to and I, I gave my feedback to to the mailing list and some changes um, because of uh, feedback from me and a ton of other people from the community you know, more changes were made until we got to something where, you know, it's not 100% what I would do, but it's very, very close. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a big change for the better, I would say. And it's definitely made a lot of Objective-C APIs kind of not even feel like Objective-C anymore. It kind of sometimes I will write some code against the Cocoa API and I, I will stop thinking like, Wait, wait a second. This is actually an Objective C API, but it feels so native to Swift, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, what do you say? Should we start diving into our questions and topics that we got from the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So, we're going to start here with a question that comes from Vijay Tholpadi. And Vijay asks From experience, what topics in programming would you say were helpful to understand in order to grow from a developer that can build apps to a more seasoned developer? So I think this is a really interesting question. And this kind of, for me, it boils down a lot to this kind of never ending debate of kind of what makes a junior developer, what makes a senior developer. Um, so I thought it would be interesting just to discuss that a little bit. So what are your thoughts on this, Radek? This is a great question. Uh, when I saw that on, on, on Twitter, the, the first thing I, I thought was, uh, I thought of the blog post by Krzysztof Zabłocki or uh, Merwing on, on Twitter. Uh, he wrote this blog post about seniority, so exactly what, what you're describing. Right. And I think Krzysztof's uh, thoughts align uh, very much with, with mine. So I think that when you're beginning um, your journey as a developer, you think very pragmatically. You, you just want to get to the done state, right? You have an idea and you want to make it a reality. And so you care a lot about APIs and libraries and, and tools you can use to quickly put together something that works. And, and that's great. Uh, but then uh, over time, you, you discover that that's, that's sort of not enough because oftentimes there are no exact done solutions that you can just use. Sometimes you have to create this solution for yourself. Sometimes you have really difficult problems that arise from things that, that seem simple, right? Like, I don't know, just today I, I 
I spent a lot of time thinking about some piece of code that was very asynchronous and asynchronousity is really, really hard, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, over time, I, I think to, to get to being a seasoned developer, you have to overcome just thinking about APIs and, and uh, solutions that are ready. You have to get back to the basics. You have to understand the basics of programming really, really well. Uh, and I, I wish I, I had a, a good list of, hey, here's a hundred things you should learn. Uh, but it's, it's not as simple as that. I, I don't have such a list. It's something that comes from experience, but it, it's not automatic. It, it doesn't just come over time. You have to spend time working on it, practicing, practicing alone, often on things that uh, are not going to be shipped yet. So, for example, I think everybody, everyone who's serious about programming should spend some time learning functional programming uh, and RFP, reactive functional programming. And you don't have to use it in shipping apps. That's, that's not the point. The point is that it really expands your um, sort of uh, intellectual horizons and changes the way you think about programming. And you start noticing new patterns, new ways of solving problems. And you can't just open a book about functional programming and start applying these principles to shipping products because it's, it's a whole new paradigm, right? It's not as simple as that. So yeah. often, I think, if you're serious about really growing yourself as a developer, you need to find time, make time for deliberate practice and just take, you know, make up a, a, uh, a fake project so that you can train and practice uh, those new things. And, you know, really solve and solve lots of different problems. Think about abstractions, how I can express this code. What's the best uh, abstraction I can use so that it doesn't just work today, but that it's reliable, that it won't break, that it's going to be easy to test so that, again, it doesn't break. So that's going to be understandable for other programmers. So it won't have bugs. So it, um, it uh, takes care of uh, uh, problems like, um, you know, a lot of code from less experienced programmer assumes about the world that everything will succeed, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you ship it to production and it turns out that those things, you know, that time when you force unwrapped an optional, it turned out that it actually can be nil in some circumstances, right? Yeah. Um, read a lot of code and, and actually don't just, you know, Look through it, but but really read it, really understand it as if you were trying to understand prose, understand a, a difficult book. Um, again, think about clarity and think about uh, the team, right? That, that's, yeah. that, that's what makes you the so-called senior programmer. I, I don't really like this term, but, <laughs> but the point is that if you're going to make something really complex, you can't do it alone. And in order to work well with a team and in order to make something that will last for years and not just a quick prototype, uh, you have to you know, change your approach to, to writing code because you can't just whip out something that works but nobody will understand and, and can just do something that works now but it's completely untestable and so no one will ever test it and so it will surely break badly in production. And you also start thinking then about about sharing uh, your knowledge with other people on the team so that you're, you're not the only person that can do something, right? Yeah. And what you'll find when you do that is that sharing, uh, teaching other people uh, makes you 
learn better. You know, teaching is a great way of, of learning because yeah. to, to teach, just like to write good prose, to write a good blog post, explaining something, it forces you to really make sense of your unstructured thoughts and really make them really, really clear and exact. Yeah, that is a really great point. Uh, I totally agree with what you said about, uh, well, actually, I agree with, with most of the things you said, <laughs> but one thing in uh, but one thing in particular is about kind of practicing the quote-unquote craft of programming. Yes. And for me, this comes down a lot to prototyping and just like building things for the sake of learning. So that's why, for example, I've mentioned many times on the show already, but I love to use playgrounds. And I will often post things and experiments and, and do these kind of things to get feedback from people and to kind of show new ideas. And also just to try new patterns. Like when whenever some new framework comes out, I love to, you know, pull that down, you know, open it in a playground and try it out and see what it's all about. And for me, this is a, a really good tool in order to grow as a developer, not necessarily just to learn this like specific implementations. Like you say, stop thinking so much about APIs and start thinking more like big picture. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's a great way to kind of learn the different patterns that you see kind of come up in the industry in general. For me also, one thing that really kind of separates a, let's just call them for the sake of argument, junior and senior developer, or you can call them, you know, a beginner or an, or an experienced developer or a developer who, who is in the beginning of their journey versus one that has, you know, a lot of experience and a lot of tools in their tool belt is kind of how you approach decisions. Mm. So one thing I've noticed a lot is that sometimes people will phrase questions like what is the best unit testing framework what is the best architecture what is the best x right where x can be anything and instead of asking questions like that i think if you want to kind of level up in your kind of um skill set i think it's better to ask questions like given these requirements what kind of tool do i need to solve that problem is there an existing tool that I can use? Is there something I need to build? Or is it something I need to maybe take something and adapt it? And this for me, this kind of change in thinking, instead of just looking for these kind of silver bullet type solutions to start designing systems more, uh, this really uh, is a big kind of milestone that I think you need to hit. I agree with every word. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I think in general, it's like, uh, I think system design is something that we don't talk enough about in our community. We talk a lot about architecture patterns like MVVM, MVC, but we don't talk so much about like designing systems, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, because for example, I used to be a backend developer and when you are building backend systems, you have a very different approach where you're more thinking about, okay, what do I need my system to do? How, how, how do I need it to perform in terms of you know, performance or scalability? And what kind of building blocks will I build my system from and how will I kind of split it up? And there's less focus on these kind of more rigid patterns, but more focus on just like, what kind of solution do I need to design in order to fit this use case? Yeah, that, that, that sounds good. Awesome. So let's move over now to the next question. And this one comes from friend of the show, Gilad Ronat. And he wants us to talk a little bit about React Native. So um, Radek, you've been lately getting more and more into React Native, like you know several other people in our community. Mm -hmm. So uh, Gilad wants to hear your thoughts about 
what makes the React paradigm so good? Uh, and he says, especially geared towards a clueless, stateful UIKit slave like me. <laughs> it's perfect. I love it. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny way of phrasing it. And also, what's the viability of a React Native-like tool to become kind of more dominant in the distant future? So first off, like, what is it about kind of React Native, you think, that makes it kind of so popular? Okay, so uh, this is what you just described about you know, designing systems and, and making decisions and taking into consideration the exact requirements. So I would say React Native as a, you know, as a thing that, that exists, most iOS programmers listening to this show probably will not be interested and probably should not be. And that's, that's, not, that's not the point. And I think iOS developers ignore React Native or, or laugh at it, but not for the right reasons, I think. So uh, there are use cases where React Native is best tool for the job. And most of that has to do not with purely technical aspects, but organizational aspects. So for example, if you are a really small company making uh, who, that wants to make a, uh, a product that's something really quite complicated, and you know you have limited resources, but you have to be because of business reasons to be on iOS and Android, because otherwise the product just doesn't make sense, then React Native is, is pretty great because you can do something. If, if you know what you're doing, you can get to something that feels 95% as native as, as, as a UI kid app. And you don't, you don't um, you know, spend twice as much building the same exact thing for the other platform. Um, so uh, that's the reason to use React Native as it is today. Yeah, uh, but uh, Gilad asked about the React paradigm and the viability in, in the future, and I think that's the really interesting thing. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, that's the thing that iOS programmers should be thinking about. I think every iOS developer, again, who's serious about um, expanding their their uh, horizons, should try playing with React Native and not just for five minutes and get frustrated because you're working with new tools that you don't know and don't understand, but really try to understand the paradigm of React because that's the really interesting thing. Uh, that's the, the paradigm of React is, is the future. I'll, I'll, I'll just say it. it's, it's, it's the future because you build interfaces uh, in a declarative way. Yeah. You just say, given these inputs, given uh, this... Um, state, this is what the interface should be. And, and, and that's it. And you don't have to worry about going through multiple different routes in, in an imperative code to do on first render, do this and this and this. And when this happens, change the label of this view. No, you just have one, uh, only one path in the code where you say, given this, render this. And the framework takes care of the rest. And then there's a really interesting, fascinating uh, community about React and React Native that experiments with even more sort of new and advanced way of building interfaces. For example, using um, so-called Hawks, uh, higher order components, where you can have not just declarative interfaces, but declarative logic. And this is difficult to understand in, in a podcast form, but this makes code really, really, really simple and really clear. You don't have to worry about a whole class of bugs because the job of updating and rendering the first render of the interface is taking care of the framework. Yeah. 
And then the, the second big selling point of the uh, React paradigm is the instant feedback loop. And this, you really can't fully appreciate it until you, you really try it. When you're building, uh, working with an iOS project, even in dev mode, you make one simple change and you want to see the results, you have to wait many, many, many seconds. There are hacks like um, hot reloading of some stuff in Xcode, but it's a hack. It doesn't quite work. In React Native, uh, it just works. You make a change to a style or logic of a component. You, you hit Command S in the editor, and in 200, 300 milliseconds, you see the result. And the, the boost in productivity that gives you is just enormous. Yeah, absolutely. Hot reloading is such a nice technology and it's something that I wish would, like you say, like become the future, like be everywhere. And if we think about it, I mean, we were talking before, you were saying before about, you know, functional programming, that's something you recommend every developer to look into. And if we think about like React, this is kind of like a great manifestation of that, of functional programming, because your UI kind of becomes a function of your state. Exactly. Where... Yeah, you just update the state and the UI changes. And like you say, that way of programming in general, whether you have like a React native implementation or you have an implementation in Swift or whatever language, it that kind of model of working is so nice because like you say, you don't have to worry about like chaining if and else statements or have a delegate callback and keep managing the state. You just get a callback to render, you render, you send back the state of the UI and you're done. And it, again, it it makes such a huge boost in productivity and the reliability, uh, at least in, in, in those respects, right? Yeah. So uh, j just like I'm saying, you should try learning functional programming even if you want to apply it to your job. And I, I'm saying you should learn React Native even if you want to build a React Native app because iOS programmers will say uh, it's slow, it doesn't feel as native, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they're right for the most part, uh, but that's not the point. The point is that you can take this paradigm and you can re-implement, there's nothing specific about JavaScript in it. You can re-implement it in a faster language, right? Yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. The hot reloading is tricky with, with Swift, but you could have a language uh, that could be interpreted for dev purposes and compiled to pure native super fast code for, for release mode. So React Native today might not be it, but this is the future, just not this implementation. And there's a lot of the ideas from React Native that you could implement in Swift today, even if you don't care about Android, you don't care about all those other things, a lot of it you can implement in Swift. Yeah, absolutely. But if you ignore it completely because of the exact implementation of those ideas, then you'll miss out on this and the whole community, I think, misses out on some of this really great stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And... One one way of doing, like, getting halfway there is to do what many game engines do and what also uh, we try to do at Spotify with the hub framework that I was the lead developer of, where basically we were encoding the entire state of the UI as a JSON file, and then that JSON file could be sent directly from the backend and just rendered on the client. And what that also meant is that you could have a local JSON file for development that you were just updating, and that way you could write your logic, you know, compile that as Swift code, and then your data kind of drives your UI. So it's, it's not complete hot reloading, but you can experiment a lot more with content and you can have your logic be more declarative. Yeah, I actually experimented with some of these ideas. Not, not all of it, just, just a small slice of the React idea, ideas um, 
when Apple Watch came around, and I had the issue of well, I'm loading a, a list of tasks from the server, and I want to render it on the screen. But back then, in in the you know. Uh, when we developers still lived in a cage uh, as far as Apple Watch development went, <laughs> the logic was on the phone and the yeah. interface was on another device. And so the penalty for updating the interface was super high. And then it's super tricky to just uh, update this this table, this this list view, when some of the changes come from the interface, from the user, and some of these can come from the server, right? And so I wrote this... Uh, this little uh, Swift library called Diffy Tables, where you you have, as far as you as a programmer are concerned, you implement the the, ta- the the list view as an array, and you you do whatever you want with it. You can you know just completely rewrite it, and when you do sort of render update, uh, the uh, the algorithm does on the phone the uh, the the diff to see what actually changed, and only those only those things are actually sent over Bluetooth to to the device. Oh, nice! And so I don't have to worry about keeping that state. I just I'm rewriting it every time, but only the relevant changes actually are sent to to the device. Now it's the same device, uh, but actually, uh, at least uh, what, back in WatchOS 2, uh, I haven't tested it since then. There was still a performance um, improvement, and uh, you know, in addition to the the big productivity improvement. Nice, yeah, that sounds super cool. Is that something that you open sourced? Yeah, uh, I did. Uh, it's not it's not really maintained, but it works. Uh, it still uh, ships with the Nosby uh, WatchOS app. Nice, that's really cool. We'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can check it out. Because, yeah, like we mentioned, I think checking these kind of different paradigms out and learning from them and seeing how you could apply maybe not the whole framework, maybe not the whole technology, but parts of it and the things that you like in your own code, I think it can be really, really valuable. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So next up, we're going to talk about another kind of language choice that many, many teams are facing, and that is Swift versus Objective-C. So we have a question here from Manoj Karki, who wants to know, is porting a large code base from Objective-C to Swift really worth the efforts? So uh, this is a good question. And I guess the boring answer is it depends, right? (laughs) It depends on the team and what situation you're in. But in general, uh, Radek, do you have some tips around kind of moving to Swift from Objective-C, especially if you have like a larger code base currently? I, I wish I had. Uh, for the whole life of Swift, I worked on pretty much one uh, iOS app, and it wasn't a really big Objective-C code base to be ported to Swift. Uh, so mostly what I did is wrote all of the new stuff for the last four years uh, in Swift, uh, You know, pretty much since day one, uh, and ported only some of it when I saw that it will give me some benefit. So I don't really have the... Uh, the experience to to have a a good perspective on on this. What uh, but, but uh, what I will say is that um, porting is really rewriting, and rewriting is always risky. Yeah, right? absolutely. So you you really have to uh, make a decision based on not just what it will be like in theory in your mind when you have all of this in Swift, but also how much time it will take. What's the risk uh, 
that's associated with with doing the the porting because it will be riskier and will take more time than you think uh, and the the benefits will also come with some disadvantages so objective c is faster a lot faster to compile than swift right mm -hmm. yeah so um i would say um you have to i i would approach it um that i will port those things that I see will give me the best bang for my buck. So if if something is really simple to port because it, it's not connected to a hundred other things, go ahead port it. If something is uh, has some sort of abstraction where um, it will be really helpful in terms of safety or some other features to have it in Swift, go ahead port it. If something is like some class that you work with all the time and you'll have the the most um, the most ad advantage having it being in this, you know, nicer, cleaner, or whatever language, or you'll need to use features from Swift-only libraries, uh, then port it. But but don't just port the whole thing um, because it feels good, because it will it will be really frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's this classic saying like, if you rewrite something, you're trading the bugs that you know about to the bugs that you don't know about, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, I feel the same way like you do about porting in general. I mean, sometimes it can be worth it in order to just like, you know, migrate some of the code and to also kind of get on Swift because, you know, if you go to WWDC, like everything is in Swift. Uh, Apple, they're, they are only talking in Swift these days. And the community is largely moving to, to Swift in general. So, uh, being able to kind of, you know, stay with the community as the community is moving forward, I think that can be a great reason to to embrace Swift in general. But there are many ways you can do it. And like you say, like picking your targets instead of just like rewriting everything is definitely the approach I would take. Um, I talked a little bit about this actually on a previous episode with Mike Ash, uh, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Uh, where we talked about, you know, different ways you can start embracing Swift, even if you have a big Objective-C code base. And one thing I think I mentioned on that episode, at least, uh, was that you can start writing things like unit tests in Swift, if you just want to get started. That way you can, you know, get started with Swift. You can, you can also see how your current Objective-C code imports into Swift before you kind of have to live with that pain that can come with it. Because mm. we just talked about it in the beginning, where it was like, in the beginning, the standard library or, or uh, UI kit wasn't very nicely imported into Swift. And that can definitely be true for your own code as well. So if you can learn about those things in kind of a unit testing environment and then start porting kind of, you know, piece by piece, module by module, if you need to, I think that can be a general, in general, a pretty good approach. Uh, starting with unit test is actually a really good idea, uh, especially that unit testing is not as common as it should be uh, in iOS community. So you can have, you know, a fry to fish on. No, that's not how we say it in English. How we say it in English? I think you you say kill a bird, kill two oh. birds with one stone. But that that expression is so gruesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Fry two eggs with one pan, maybe. I've never heard that. I don't know. I just came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I think it's a great way to combine these two efforts. You know, you increase your unit test coverage, you learn about Swift, you learn how your APIs will import into Swift, and you can kind of, you know, get a little feel for it. And that can also inform your decision on which modules to start with first. Because if you have something where you're like, oh, this is really cumbersome to use in Swift, well, maybe that can be a candidate for a rewrite. Yeah, uh, totally agreed. 
Awesome. So uh, next up, we're going to talk about something that is also a little bit tangentially related to unit testing, but it's about dependency injection. So we have a question here from Hugo Lundin, who wants us to talk about dependency injection and singletons. What are your thoughts about them? And what approach do you usually take in your projects? So uh, Radek, are you a dependency injection kind of guy? Or do you use a lot of singletons? What are your current approach? So, <laughs> yeah, dependency injection kind of guy uh, suggests uh, as if it was, you know, really a thing, you know, <laughs> uh, th th that's uh, what I mean is um, I stayed away from dependency injection for a long time because it sounded too serious. It sounded like a real technique. Yeah. And to me, that's that's not technique. It, it's not a technique. You're just passing an object to an object. There's nothing special about it. Um, so as for singletons, uh, <laughs> that's the thing about growing from can build apps to seasoned developer. Uh, for a very long time, I would be naive enough to say, to think, um, hmm, yeah, you know, in, in this case, I really don't need multiple instances of this. I'll just make a singleton. It will be easier to use. It, it will be a simpler uh, interface. It will just be less work to do. So I'll just make it a singleton. And every single time, it comes back to bite you in the ass. <laughs> every single time. Yeah. Right? And I've, I've you know, sometimes it, it took a few months, sometimes it took a few years, but every single time I've realized in the end that there was really no no clear advantage of making it, it, it a singleton. And it's it's not that you don't do singletons because you need testability and that's, you know, more work for you. There's it, It's really as simple as developing good habits as a developer. It's really not difficult. Dependency injection is just passing an object to an object, right? Yeah. And if you, if you have this on your mind that this is how you write proper high-quality code, then this is just how we do it. There's no pain in it. There's no extra work in not making singletons. And dependency injection is, is just a meaningless phrase. You're just passing an object to another object that needs that first object. And, and that is much, much better. Not just because it's easier to test and it's you know, possible to test without hacks. It's, it's just that if you're making, uh, you know, it's different if you're just making a, a simple app for yourself, a quick prototype, it's different when you're making something for a client and then you forget about it. But if you're building a product and you're going to, uh, or the team is going to keep working on it for years, um, things change, assumptions change. The assumptions you've made first designing this abstraction will come, you know, you know, will come to be completely different. And when you have a singleton, you'll have hundreds of places in your code where this assumption about this thing being just one uh, will be broken. It will be super hard to rip out that singleton. But when you start from the assumption that things change and this singleton might come to, you know, in reality in a year, it's, you might need four of these objects or, you know, one of these objects for every uh, view or whatever, it will be very, it will be much easier to, to, to change. And this writing code for um, ease of change, ease of refactoring, I think is a, is a very big, point in, in writing high quality code. It's not just about the current state, but about writing code uh, encapsulated well enough that when it turns out that you have to structure it differently because the assumptions, the design, the whatever changes, you can do it without you know spending a month on it. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like 
we will never be able to see into the future. I mean, at least not the way things look right now. <laughs> uh, so the best we can do is prepare for the future. And if we can make fewer hard assumptions and instead create these like more loose coupling between our different modules and different parts of our code base, uh, that will make things easier to change in the future. And having these like intertwined relationships between objects where that's kind of the big problem you're talking about where you know, you have a hundred places where your singleton is being used. Uh, there's no clear definition between the relationship of these objects. They are all kind of just floating in one big bowl of spaghetti, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and that's for me also is the biggest benefit of dependency injection is that you have this more clear structured relationship between your objects where it's like, okay, my user manager needs a data loader. It needs a cache. It needs this and that permissions, whatever. And it's very clear. Like you see it right there in the initializer. This is what this object requires. And this relationship is more clearly defined. Yeah. And again, if, if it changes and there's still like a whole chunk of the code that works with the old assumptions, when you have just an object, not a singleton, but an object that you pass, there's a ton of uh, approaches you can make to ease the transition. Like you can have a, a new class that is sort of an adapter for this part of the code that will still work with with assuming the old API, but still having a directly passed, you know, explicitly passed object. And so there's there's much less work that needs to be done when the assumptions change. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, another technique that I usually use when migrating from a singleton pattern to dependency injection is that I start with using a default argument for the dependency injection, mm -hmm. where the default argument is actually the singleton. Yeah. So I will do something like init with user manager, and that will be you know, the shared user manager. So that way I can start migrating, I can start using these good practices without having to refactor the entire code base. Um, I wrote about some of that stuff in some of my blog posts, including uh, avoiding singletons in Swift, and we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Uh, another pattern that I like to use is the factory pattern, uh, where you can have a factory that creates some of your dependencies so you don't have to rely on a singleton. You can just have a factory that prepares them for you. And that way, you can also ease the transition. Yeah, that, that sounds completely reasonable. Great. Um, our final question for this episode comes from Grzegorz Vikiera. And Grzegorz wants to know what we think about microfeatures. And do we split our code up into separate frameworks on a daily basis? And how do we deal with the app launching time if we have many different frameworks? So this is an idea that has become more and more popular in the iOS developer community around splitting things up into separate frameworks and separate projects within an app. So instead of just having one big Xcode project containing all of your code, uh, to instead start creating smaller kind of building blocks that are separate uh, Xcode projects. Um, so what do you think about this approach, Radek? Is this something you usually do or do you prefer to keep everything in one place? I definitely prefer to keep everything in one place, uh, but for a very pragmatic reason, uh, which is that um, as the other uh, part of the, the question asks, uh, you have a problem with up launching time when you have many dependent frameworks. So so this is, this is really an iOS pr problem. This is, um, we can have this discussion in, in principle, but when applied to Swift and iOS development, splitting things to, to a separate Xcode project, uh, building it up as a dynamic framework, uh, there are real serious practical considerations uh, with it. Uh, now, 
there are other practical considerations. Like if you have a super big code base, then compiling all of it into one binary takes a lot of time here and splitting it up such that if you don't touch that framework, you don't have to recompile it gives another benefit, right? Yeah. So that to me sounds super frustrating uh, just from, from the standpoint of um, iOS uh, tooling because in uh, we mentioned React Native. In, in, in JavaScript, um, dependencies are, are really easy and um, you know, say what you will about NPM and the node modules <laughs> folder is a black hole and it's totally bad, but... Uh, on the other hand, the advantage of um, of npm as opposed to CocoaPods or you know just in general the dependencies uh, in iOS with Swift is that there's pretty much no overhead uh, with that, right? So you you can if you feel like it's going to be simpler, uh, it's going to it's going to force you to be cleaner with code, or it's going to be easier from other practical considerations to split it off into a separate uh, module. Uh, with separate tooling and, and, and whatnot, um, then you can do it and there are pretty much no negative consequences uh, with that. On iOS, you really have to think about, well, you know, this code may, may very well be cleaner uh, because you forced yourself to define a very clear interface a boundary uh, by, you know, making it a library a framework. But then your app launches a really long time and that's what should be your number one priority as an app developer, making a great product. And an app that launches slowly, well, you know, uh, isn't that what iOS apps should be better at than those React Native web apps <laughs> being fast? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like every, uh, like with everything, it's uh, it comes down to trade-offs, right? It's like exactly. you can either take a bigger hit on compiling your entire project from scratch, or you can say, okay, this part of the code, I'm not expecting you to change that often, so I can just compile it once uh, as a framework and then just link to that, and that will speed up my development. Uh, and it all depends on kind of, you know, what part of the code base we're talking about. Uh, and of course, right now, we have to do dynamic linking with all of our frameworks, which is what is causing, you know, this increased app launch time as our list of frameworks grow. But as long as we keep it within a kind of reasonable number, I think it's usually fine. And one thing I usually do is I have will have some kind of core uh, framework, and that will be a separate framework, a separate Xcode project uh, that will contain kind of the non-UI related logic. And that is something that I can, for example, if I if I'm developing a bunch of different apps for the same client, uh, which I'm currently doing. In the current um, uh, in the current project I'm working right now, uh, we can reuse the same core in all of these projects, and that has a big benefit also in terms of maintainability uh, because the core can be super tested, uh, you know, tested really quickly, developed on really quickly. Uh, but we don't have that big hit of having like 15 uh, libraries that we need to dynamically link against. Yeah, so this is uh, an approach I take uh, in the Nosby app. There's a Nosby kit. Uh, which has all of the the, the core logic, uh, but that's the only my framework. Yeah, uh, and and that's super helpful primarily for app extensions. So I have the share extension, the widgets, the the Apple Watch app, the notifications, notifications UI, uh, Siri intents. There's a lot of app extensions, and so sharing that makes a big difference. Um, but I think with with time, with uh, tooling getting improved, you know, when you can, uh, if you can, just use static linking of, of Swift, then 
uh, that reason not to go with that route disappears. And I suppose, in principle, it should be possible to make a tool which sort of dynamically recreates the Xcode project structure such that you can have this compiled in one bundle or as a separate framework. Yeah. Um, that should be possible. Yeah, so you can work in a way that suits you and you could you know, have these more clear separation between the different modules, but when at the end of the day things are compiled, that kind of that let, that abstraction is kind of stripped away. Yeah, uh, then you could think of it just as an optimization step, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but in general, I think the idea of microfeatures, especially for large project, can can be uh, pretty valuable. And this is something again we just talked about earlier about you know system design and and being kind of inspired by things like backend development. Uh, this is something that is extremely common in backend backend development these days, like building scalable systems through microservices. And uh, when it comes to implementing this in Swift, um, friend of the show Pedro Pinera has made a kind of guideline about how this could be implemented in Swift, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's called Microfeatures. And while it still has the problem, like we talked about with dynamic linking and things, and it can become like, if you do it too early in the project's life cycle, I think you can kind of end up, uh, you know, with a little bit of a premature optimization problem where you have like, you know, 10 modules, but if you don't have a huge code base, then that can just end up being more complicated. Mm -hmm. But for larger projects, I think this is something you could end up growing into. Yeah, I agree. And uh, again, getting inspired by the backend development is, is, a, is a great point because uh, microservices are, are great in, in really big projects, especially in, in big organization, because microfeatures uh, or microservices is not just a, a code architecture pattern, it's an organizational pattern. When you have a big team working on an app, it becomes really, really hard to communicate everything. And by separating it out such that you're forced to make a, a small, uh, clean, defined interface, then you can have these sub-teams working on big chunks, chunks of code and they don't have to communicate all of the internals between one another. Yeah, that's a really great point. And you can iterate on your own kind of code base. It's almost like you are working on your own little your own little Xcode project, then you can keep working on that and just have a stable interface, for example, using a protocol to the rest of the app. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So that's all the questions uh, for this episode. Uh, I want to thank everyone who sent in questions. And speaking of questions, I have a little bit of an announcement to make. So a couple of days ago, I asked on Twitter a little bit about the format of the show and what people think about it and whether or not uh, it would be a good idea to experiment with a slightly different format going forward. And over 80% actually said that, yeah, uh, trying a new format sounds like a good idea. So that's what we're going to do. So starting next episode, uh, we're going to put a slightly less focus on the Q&A part of the show. It's still, there's still going to be Q&A, but it's not going to be like the, the main chunk of the show. And instead, what I want to do is I want to ask all the guests that come onto the show to kind of pick the swift topics that they are the most excited about. And I think what will probably end up happening is that we'll have even more kind of interesting conversations and get really good kind of insights from the guests about the topics that they really care about and they are really excited about. So I think it's healthy to kind of iterate on something. And now we've done 20 episodes with this format. Let's do a couple of ones with the new format and then we'll just see where we go from there. So it's not a radical change, but can look forward to that on the next episode for a slight change to the, to the format. So 
Now we've reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Radek, for being my guest on this episode. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I think we had a lot of great discussions. Uh, so if people want to follow you online and check out your work, uh, where should they go? So I'm on Twitter at Radexp, R-A-D-E-X-P, uh, on GitHub at Radex, without the P. <laughs> uh, my blog is radex.io. And for the most part, lately, I've been avoiding Twitter, but you can you know, check with me every week on the podcast.fm. Awesome. We'll put links in the show notes to all of those things so that people can find you. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at John Sundell, and you can find everything about this show and the weekly Swift blog posts at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.